Hey guys, welcome back. It's Alana. And Jacqueline. And you're back for another episode of Black and Yellow. Hi guys. It's Blackuary, y'all. Blackuary. Happy Black History Month Happy to one Black and all. Happy History Month. How was your Chinese New Year? First and foremost. Oh, right. Yeah. Happy <laughs> Happy New Year to all my fellow Asians. Uh, happy Year of the Pig to happy... all the pigs that are listening. That's not a slight. Like, if that is your animal, I hope that your year is killing it. It's your year, guys. That's it. Uh, it was pretty mellow. Okay. Um, we did sort of a double celebration because it was my younger brother's birthday as well. Oh, fun. Yes, it was uh, his birthday and New Year all on the same day. So that hopefully means a lot of good luck for him. Nice. Yeah. Last year it was mine. Last year my birthday and, and Chinese New Year fell on the same day. Holy shit. Yeah, and it was pretty powerful. I felt like the ancestors were on my side. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were protecting me. Nice. Yeah. I got my first red envelope from you. I know. It was very, very exciting. <laughs> I waited until the exact day of Chinese New Year because you gave it to me before I leaving for your epic for journey. Christmas, yes. So, thank you for that. You're welcome. I feel, like, even more indoctrinated into (laughs) this Blasian world of ours that we are creating. We are. Blasians is is the way to go. (laughs) In case you didn't know, guys. Yes. We are going to rule the world. Amazing Blasians. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so, yeah, it was pretty mellow, but um, that being put aside, it's it's also Black History Month. That it is. We are here. Um, we're going to do, so instead of, there's many ways we were thinking of like, how should we structure, um, this month's of episodes and instead of focusing on maybe the more, uh, troublesome topics, topics, we want to focus on the beautiful people. Yes. Who have paved the way. Definitely. Specifically the women. We're giving up to black women this month. Yes, we are. We're going to focus on three uh, feminists who have really uh, made an impact in our society totally. and uh, defined uh, roles and have been role models for young girls and older girls, mm-hmm. um, sort of like a past, a present, and a future. Yeah. Um, so today is going to be our past episode. Yes, Jack and I wanted to split the difference when we talk about past. Yes. We didn't want to go so old like Sojourner Truth, yeah. Audre Lord, old, because we wanted it to be someone that was still alive and still around that if you listen to this episode and you got inspired and you wanted to receive more of these people's messages, you totally could. Right. So we chose people that chose women that were still alive. Yes. Still kicking ass, Not still dead. working, still creating change. Mm-hmm. And today is going to be our past episode and we are going to feature miss kimberly crenshaw oh miss kimberly crenshaw can we just talk about how prestigious she yeah. is and how much she's actually accomplished yeah definitely. like okay she's a professor you know ucla mm-hmm. columbia she teaches law she Critical coined race the term. theory founder. Yeah, one of them. she's she's most known for coining the term of of or actually writing an entire paper on intersection, uh, intersectional feminism, and then you go into more about and you she Cornell Harvard mm-hmm. just like mind blown. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, so essentially, Kimberly's claim to fame, as you just said, is she coined the term intersectionality in 1989. I don't think I knew who Kimberly... 1989. Yeah, totally. Let's take, just take a moment and do some math. 
that is over 20 years ago. Now, mind you, intersectional 30. experiences were being lived way before that coin, that phrase was coined. <laughs> that coin was phrased. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, girl. But um, it was really her that came along and, and gave it meaning, gave it substance, and I think for women like us, really changed the way that we talk about feminism today. Yeah, because ultimately, I think for a while, when you thought of if you weren't educated or it wasn't something that you, I I mean, being a minority and being a woman, I think, uh, I don't know, personally, whenever I thought about feminism, I thought mostly white women. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even really necessarily want consider myself a feminism in the fact that I wasn't doing the things that they were doing or yeah. I didn't look like the things or look like them. Mm-hmm. And so for a while I thought uh, as feminist as just like powerful women who spoke their mind. Mm-hmm. But I think when Kimberly came out with how there's so much more that is actually a part of that, mm-hmm. uh, it it really i think i think set the tone definitely i think for a while their feminism got hijacked by high flouting highly educated white women of a certain socioeconomic background yes and i feel like for a while even though they were fighting a fight it wasn't a fight that felt accessible to everyone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think with kimberly's paper in uh in 89 which we'll get into a little bit later in the episode um she really set a tone for how race and gender really affect someone's unique journey through the world. Right. And if, and how it really adds nuance. And that was something that the, the feminists of, I would say like the eighties, mid nineties sometimes touched on, sometimes didn't. Um, Kimberly also was pretty pivotal in, uh, laying the foundation to something called critical race theory, Uh which is essentially a, it's a theoretical way of looking at race and the framework of race as it applies to people who lie at an intersection of gender and race mm-hmm. or gender ability and race, right. things of that nature. Yeah. And I think that intersectionality, it's not just for black women. I think the brilliance of intersectionality is that it applies to so many different people who apply at so many different intersections. What, well, be it the LGBT community, yep. uh, how you're abled, if you're differently abled, your mental capacity, socioeconomic background, creed, religion. Gender orientation, class, sexual yeah. orientation, race, social stratification. I mean, there is just so much. I think what ultimately was so, I guess, educational in the sense that how all these things are actually interwoven mm-hmm. and that ultimately is it is what it's about it's right. not about you just being a woman correct right it's just all the thing all these things that actually come together define that definitely yeah so let's talk about when the word intersectional uh really hit the cultural zeitgeist mm-hmm. so i would say the seeds were planted in 2016 by ashley judd and she tweeted my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit 
And then in 2018, I believe that was the Oscars So White. No, no, no. 2018 was the uh, the sexual harassment scandal in Hollywood. That was oh, all the Harvey, yeah, Weinstein Harvey Weinstein stuff was going down. So during the third act of the Oscars, uh, there was a pre-taped segment celebrating and encouraging diversity in Hollywood. And it was introduced by Ashley Judd. She loves that word. Selma Hayek <laughs> and Annabelle Soria. And these three women had also accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault. And they were essentially sending a very clear message to the Academy about the new model of speaking up and accepting change. And uh, Ashley Judd went on to say, We work together to make sure that the next 90 years empower these limitless possibilities of equality, diversity, inclusion, intersectionality. That's what this year has promised us. And I think that that moment really put that word out there and it was all of a sudden the word intersectional was like very fashionable yeah. very trendy yeah, yeah. it was splattered all over all, everyone was using yeah, it because if you I guess weren't interested or didn't go to law or weren't weren't very or aren't very academia based mm-hmm. then it's not natural that you're gonna necessarily come across this term right Unless, unless that stuff. And I think because of Harvey Weinstein and because of these powerful women that have the ability to, uh, I guess, interfere in media and, and make these comments, I guess then was like the moment it was like liberated. Yeah. Because essentially like the, the paper that she wrote was a scholarly critique on anti-discrimination. Yeah. So unless you were really in that a uh, high education sort of scholarly world or or critically paying attention to race and and critical race discussions you might not have ever come across it right if you were going to be a lawyer or all the stuff that has totally you, know, the, you need to learn these these terms so the paper that Kimberly wrote in 1989 was called Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. See y'all, like I told you, this was some definitely some high, like critical thinking manuscript here. Mm-hmm. And I will actually read to you the, the excerpt that that the phrase is used in. So she says, I argue that black women are sometimes excluded from feminist theory and anti-racist policy discourse because both are predicated on a discrete set of experiences that often does not accurately reflect the interaction of race and gender. These problems of exclusion cannot be solved by including black women within an already established analytical structure. Because the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism, any analysis that does not take intersectionality into account cannot sufficiently address the particular manner in which black women are subordinated. Boom. Damn. (laughs) Who's going to go up against that? Totally. So essentially... The argument that she's making in the paper is that the experience of being a black woman cannot be understood in terms of being black and of being a woman. Essentially, you can't consider them separately. Yeah. They need to be, uh, excuse me. Together, interwoven. Right. You have to interweave them in order to get an accurate depiction of what it's like to be a black woman. Uh, Completely. Let's take that in for a second. (laughs) It's kind of a lot to take in. Yeah, she is quite scholarly. That That is for sure. Um, yeah, it just, once you hear that, you just feel like, wow. 
it makes perfect sense. Like, where did mm-hmm. how did that happen? Where we just sort of decided? Well, I, I don't know. I, I'm just curious that it just it it, it, it took a while. Like it it took so long. I feel like you know. Yeah, it did. I think um, reading that excerpt, I think back to when we're defining our minority teen identity. Mm. And, like, having those moments, I would say between the ages of, like, 9 and 12, that are slightly racially themed and slightly gender themed, but you can't quite put a finger on why. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You can't quite put a finger on why your white friend was treated a little bit differently than you Mm -hmm. or why her pain is not valued or validated in the way that you feel your pain is equal to, but yet it's not getting the same validation. Well, too, I think as a child or when you're a young girl, you don't really understand the differences or are educated in the sense of, well, you are in the same school, but your socioeconomic background could be different. Mm -hmm. Your class is totally different. Your parents are different. And that trickles down and it completely affects us. But in those moments, we we don't know. We're just feeling... Yeah. you know, You're just living yeah. and trying to understand it all. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a, an amazing TED Talk that I'll get into a little bit later. But in her TED Talk, she very clearly lays out a, a model for what intersectionality looks like. And essentially, it's a, it's a, a four-way intersection. So you've got traffic traveling north, south, east, and west. And then you've got a person standing directly in the middle of that intersection. And she essentially lays it out simply as danger can come at you from all sides, Mm -hmm. whether it's from the racial side, the economic side, the religion creed side, so on and so so forth. Let's talk a little bit about her and what makes her interesting. Yeah. Shall we? Let's do that. So she's a legal scholar and civil rights activist who founded the African-American Policy Forum at Columbia University. She was born in Canton, Ohio in 1959 to parents Marion and Walter Clarence Crenshaw Jr. She attended McKinley High School. She received her bachelor's degree in government and Africana studies from Cornell University. What up, Cornell? I went to Ithaca College. So, like, we went to college in the same town on different hills. I see. So, in the process of researching this, I feel like I know her (laughs) a little bit. Like, I I know the hippie town that she got her bachelor's in. She received a JD, which is a Juris Doctor degree, uh, a graduate entry professional degree in law, and one of several other law degrees from Harvard Law School in 84. She received an LLM from the University of Wisconsin Law, and she was a law clerk to Wisconsin Supreme Court Judge Shirley Abramson. And I thought something all else that sort of jumped out at me she assisted the illegal team representing yeah. anita hill yeah that was really awesome in 1991 that makes perfect sense because if she it does harvard 1984 if you do the math by 1991 she'd already kind of gone through her schooling and yeah sort of was ready to because by 86 she joined the faculty at ucla law school yeah which i think she is still a professor still. when and i checked this morning she was still on the website yeah oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah she was Good still there what's really cool too though um, wasn't like as I was I was doing some of the research too to see if this is like still a real thing none of she teaches four classes there and um, you don't need a prerequisite for any of the classes right so it's so awesome like I would go I could go and just like she's really yeah. putting that that intersectional lens yeah. 
to work as it yeah. relates to education. Like, I thought when I saw that, I was like, because you would expect, you know, especially in academia, that you do need a prerequisite. And if someone who is as prestigious as her and has all these accomplishments and these degrees that, y- you know, to get there. I mean, it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, that's how, what I was thinking. And then when I saw that there was no prerequisite, I was like, wow, that she's really just really doing the work. For sure. To give and to just show that. I, like, didn't even think to put that together. Really? At all. I never thought about that. Yeah. I, I I was like, when I read it, I was like, oh, but of course. <laughs> you know? Like, of course there's no prerequisite. Super keen on you. I didn't even pay attention to that. <laughs> Though I did check and see if you could still register for her classes. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know why. I was just like, <laughs> you what classes go? are still available? What I mean, spots does she have classes It would be in? an amazing class. I think I'm I would sure. just be the best sponge possible. Yeah. And just sit there and be wowed and maybe cry. Autograph, yeah, yeah. Like but also, in would she eyes. want us in her class? Because at this point, we're like kind of fangirling. Yeah, we her. totally are fangirling. She's yeah. We're like, oh my god, all hail Kimberly Crenshaw. Seriously? You're so great. But really, I don't think. I mean, I think in LA too, we live in a very celebrity-driven social media sort of uh, type world. But when we see that you know people like Kimberly Crenshaw who are actually changing the game for us mm-hmm. and are actually putting out these highly educational papers Mm -hmm. and theses or whatever that are really going to possibly rewrite law and change bills and Mm -hmm. affect women who want to go into politics. For sure. Um, Shall we keep talking a little bit about Kimberly's accolades? (laughs) Yes. Honestly, y'all, they're so great. They are. They're like really dope. And and they don't stop. You just like, you keep reading and you're like, oh, and what else has she done? Oh, what else? Okay, let's let's do it. Go for it. Um, You talked a little bit about, so she, um, there's a huge list here. I'm just kind of going down. She is also, if I miss anything, let me know. She is also the founding member of the Women's Media Initiative and writes for Miss Magazine, The Nation. Like, what? Miss Magazine's a feminist magazine, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's awesome. Um, She's a regular commentator on NPR's The Tavis Smiley Show. Right, yeah. And I I know it's good. And twice named Professor of the Year at UCLA Law School. Um, She was awarded an in residence fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Science at Stanford University in 2008 to 2009. Yeah. She co founded and is the executive producer of the nonprofit think tank and informational clearinghouse, the African American Policy Forum, which focuses on, quote, dismantling structural inequality and, quote, advancing and expanding racial justice, gender equality, and indivisibility of all human rights, both in the United States and internationally. Boom. Speaking of internationally, as she is a specialist on race and gender equality, Mm -hmm. um, she has actually facilitated workshops for human rights activists in Brazil. And India? Yeah, she does a ton of international work. Yeah. A ton of it. That's awesome. And for constitu- constitutional court judges in South Africa, her actual groundbreaking work in, te- in intersectionality ha- is global and inter- in international intersectionality mm-hmm. uh, was actually a big influence in drafting the equality clause in the South African constitution. That's dope. 
like talk That's about dope. Talk about just really being able to change the world. On talk a about a serious bragging right. <laughs> You're so humble about it. Like I don't know how Kimberly She's Crenshaw beautiful. doesn't get out of bed for anything less right? than twenty grand a day. Like, I know. My goodness, she's I done know. so much. So much. It's she's brilliant. Yeah, she is. Um, as I mentioned earlier, she. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to go? No, go ahead. I was uh, going to talk about her TED talk a little bit. Yeah, which yeah I'll yeah. link to in the show notes because it's not that long. It's just shy of twenty minutes. Twenty minutes. Yeah. But um, it, y'all, it was mind blowing. It's called the urgency of intersectionality, and it's from 2016. And in it, she starts. She addresses a very large problem that I didn't even realize was a problem. Well, she also too really includes makes it very uh interaction. Inter- she in- like inter- interactive, inter- interactional. Jesus, I just want to keep adding Chanel. To yeah, <laughs> um, interactive with the audience. She asks them to stand up. Yeah. So as she kind of. She kind of calls, like calls everyone them out. out. I love it. I know. <laughs> On their knowledge of police of police brutality as it affects both black men and black women. And she illustrates a really beautiful point right off the top that we we as a collective society are much more familiar with the police brutality cases and police brutality murders as they affect black men, mm. but not as they affect black women. And this is, again, I mean, th- this theme, we're going to have another episode on this, but this idea of how black men have somehow... We're hypersensitive to yeah. their oppression. Yeah, way more than women. Right. For whatever reason, mm-hmm. which we'll get into in, in the further episode we have coming up for you guys, but... But also within the the framework of violence and brutality, we seem to pay more attention to the men that are on the receiving end of it versus the women. For sure. Uh, I think because somewhere in our maybe subconscious, we tend to equate violence with something that's generally a male thing. Yeah. A quote of male of men of well, masculinity. Yeah, and I think I don't. I I mean I don't know if this is right or wrong or if the statistics are statistics are right, but generally what goes out in the media. Mm-hmm. Right, because there's a lot of things that don't go out in the media, or that mm-hmm. mean the news is generally, you know, black men who do get shot right. for whatever reason that weren't supposed to get shot, and then that storms this huge more so than women. Yeah, the you media, know, yeah, the media like what gets tends fed to, to us, even more. yeah, is even f- filtered already. Oh, I think you're pretty right on that, mm-hmm. definitely, because I knew every single man that she named right off the top. I yeah. think I only knew one woman, uh, like three names in. Yeah, and I was like, ooh, like. Yeah, you better check yourself, right? Girl. <laughs> like we all better check ourselves. Like, yeah, women face the exact same amount, if not more, of police brutality and of of police killings, but we don't really hear about it because there is something within our subconscious that maybe filters women out of the violence scheme, right? Or because I don't know, is it easier to assume that the black man was doing was being and acting a certain way, and it's hard to see? Like, the way it's painted in the media, it's hard to even believe that a woman would do something like that. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, I think what she's trying to illustrate is the, is the intersectionality of police brutality as it affects women. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we don't think about the women that have died at the hands of cops, but we totally know the men. The totally. men are the ones that get all of the I attention. I mean, Black the Lives Matter was, was... For sure. What's his face? <laughs> 
uh, Trayvon Martin. Yes. Yeah. I just want to call him like Deshaun something. Nope. Trayvon why. Martin. Trayvon Martin. But also the say her name, hashtag say her name, which I think was in 2014, I want to say. Um, that was a direct response to the women that have lost their lives at the hands of police mm. and how their names are not amplified the way that we amplify the names of men. Right. And this ties in perfectly to surviving R. Kelly. Definitely. Like, just how they're overlooked. and Definitely. There's an invisibility there Mm -hmm. that I think with the term intersectionality, with the work that Crenshaw has done, has really fought to make these women visible and has has continued the fight in making women's pain visible. Because if we can't see it, we can't address it and we can't fix it. it. Exactly. Totally. Um, But not everyone agrees with the term intersectionality. Not everyone agrees that it sh- it's it's it has faced some controversy. So, of course, as all things. <laughs> so conservatives have painted those who practice intersectionality as obsessed with quote gender politics. Of course, as the DeGraffney case shows, intersectionality is not just about identities, but about the institutions that use identity to exclude and privilege. The better we understand how identities and power work together from one concept to another, the less likely our movements are to change or the less likely our movements for change are to fracture. Others accuse intersectionality of being too theoretical, of being, quote, all talk and no action. To that, I say we've been talking about racial equality since the era of slavery, and we're still not even close to realizing it. Yeah, jeez. Others argue that intersectional understanding creates an atmosphere of bullying and, quote, privilege checking. Yeah. Acknowledging privilege is hard. That's true. Acknowledging privilege is, is, is hard because we all have our own degrees of privilege, but particularly for those who experience discrimination and exclusion. Oh, uh, per, uh, particularly difficult for people who experience discrimination and exclusion. It's hard to for them to see their privileges because maybe they have less than like, sorry, I'm just trying to tease apart that last bit. The acknowledging I want, I privilege to... is hard, particularly for those who experience discrimination and exclusion. Like, everyone has their own degree of privilege. Oh, for sure. That's why privilege is hard to point out, honestly, because we all have it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I agree. Oh, man, people are so, I mean, but I love the one where it's like, it's all like, well, we're all, all we're doing is talking about it and no one's doing anything about it. Like, that's a good one. It's like, <laughs> yeah, because that one's well, what else totally are you gonna do? not true. Yeah, definitely. We're going to just stay silent and then do something about it. Right. No, we, we have to talk about it. People have to get angry. People like, definitely before anything gets done. Like, <laughs> no, you're right. And um, I mentioned a case that also in the TED talk, Crenshaw talks about, and it's a. It's a case from 1976, and it's a a really good example of this was before, obviously, the coin, the term was coined. Um, but it was essentially about how sometimes black women fall through the cracks uh-huh. because either their race is acknowledged, not their gender, or their gender and not their race. Right. So here's a little bit of backstory about that particular case. And I will say, as a, a side note, um, Crenshaw does reference this case as a lot of the basis for some of her work in terms of really like cementing what intersectionality is and how it plays out in the eyes of the law. Uh-huh. So in 1976, Emma DeGraffney and several other black women sued GM, General Motors, for discriminating, arguing that the company segregated its workforce by race and gender. 
Blacks did one set of jobs and whites did another. According to the plaintiff's experiences, women were, were welcome to apply for some jobs while only men were suitable for others. This was, of course, a problem in and of itself, but for black women, the consequences were compounded. You see, the black jobs were, men, were, were male jobs and the women's jobs were only for whites. Thus, while a black applicant might get hired to work on the floor of the factory if he were male, if she were female, she would not be considered. Similarly, a woman might be hired as a secretary if she were white, but wouldn't have a chance at the job if she were black. Neither the jobs, neither the black jobs nor the women's jobs are appropriate for black women since they were neither male nor white. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, that's still going on today. Still going on today. Yeah. But that's why some people cry um, about about intersectionality because it's like oh well it's not fair that you have two problems to argue when some people only have one right that's the thing you know what i mean that's where that's why some people criticize intersectionality well you're you have two cards to play i only have one uh when in reality black women are socialized to think of themselves as black first and women second and that's just a byproduct of racist sexist conditioning yeah yeah and the struggles that we face as black women are just as valid and we shouldn't have to separate the two right. in order to fight for the jobs that we want in the case right. of this GM case. Yeah. And I think what Kimberly really is doing is just educating people right. and understanding that when you are approaching black women, this is how you have to think about it mm-hmm. because this is the truth. Right. That. There are so many other factors that are involved in what feminism is for them. Totally. And so, yeah, that's um, that's some white shit. <laughs> <laughs> like they never, you know, they again. If you want to acknowledge privilege, and we, I've, I know there are a lot of other people who know that they are lucky to be born a certain way, to be, you know, have this these kinds of parents and this set of you know, this body in this lifetime. And it just, it's like, okay, well, some people don't. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's almost impossible to separate, at least I think it's almost impossible, impossible to separate my race from my gender. They're so inextricably linked. Right. So the idea of having to forego one and amplify the other, like I I couldn't imagine having to choose between the two. Yeah, but, like, even with, I mean, I have my own, I like, I guess, identity or uh, own cultural issues that come with, I guess, being Asian and a woman, of mm-hmm. course. But for me to hear from you that you guys are conditioned to believe that you are black first and women first is really saddening. Second. Second, sorry. Black first. Black first, which should, <laughs> should be what I just said. Uh, women, uh, black first and women second. I think... I, I don't I mean I can relate it in other terms for myself to kind of understand that more but I I can't ever imagine that what that's like and it must really be hard on someone's life. Well I don't think it's just black women that are conditioned like that. I think that a lot of minorities in the United States are forced to decide between gender and race. Like yeah, or what, that it, what are the issues that you fight for? What's what What's more of a priority to you? And I think that that's an unfair fight to have to fight. Yeah, I think it is just what it is, really, as you're growing up. But that's that's what it is, is when you're when you're growing up, it's 
a lot of things become about me being Asian first Mm -hmm. and not me being just a person or a girl. Mm -hmm. And once those scenarios or the situations are continuously affirmed by real life experiences, it becomes very obvious that, oh, okay, so this is how I'm seen and that these are the things to be Asian or what it is to be Asian or how people see me as Asian. And then the part of me being a woman or, or, or my own, my own individuality sort of loses. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. I think in college I got uh, accused of playing the black card a lot. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think it was a bad thing to do because I didn't, I couldn't just look at myself as a woman in the eyes of my theater department major where whiteness was the overarching, um, overarching sort of default in casting. Or like the default in play choices. I feel the same. I couldn't help but but play the black card because there was nothing being cast. That was feel a thousand percent the same way. Yeah, and I. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. No, no, go for it. I was just gonna say. Sorry, now my mind's like. No, go go for it. I was just gonna say too. You are taught. You know you. You are taught, you teach others how to treat you. Mm-hmm. You know that line of like, you, you, like it's, so it's like we are taught by society right. how because of how we've been treated, how we should be. And so sometimes I feel like because I've done the same, it's like, well, society has used the Asian card with me over and over and over again in a lot of my experiences. So now why can't <laughs> I, who I'm the one who's Asian, why use the Asian use card? It? Right, exactly. And if anyone has the right to use the Asian card, it's me and not what society has done and said. And, totally. You know, so then there's like, and then you go and you analyze that and that in itself is just really mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Because I find myself doing that very often. Not very often, but enough where I'm like, oh, I'm doing, like, I'm, you know. And, and most of the times it's, to be funny or to just be kind of charming or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever is fueling that. Definitely. But then I really notice it's like because someone has obviously taught me that this is something that you do. For sure. You know. I understand that. Yeah. And then I'm also just – and then I become the one who's kind of separating my own Asian-ness with my then, – Then it becomes then you are even doing it to yourself. Huh. Like it could be that – it could go that far. And I'm sure there are plenty of minorities who do that and don't know that they've been doing it because that's what society has taught them to do. Right. Yeah. It's a conditioning. Or right? or I think in some ways it can also be an ego defense mechanism. Oh, yes. You know or what I mean? Or to make you feel special because you don't feel special if you were just an ordinary person. Correct. Right? Correct. So being black is cool or being Asian is like better now because right supposedly or if you find yourself in a situation where you are the only black woman Mm -hmm. in my case or the only asian woman in a situation where you're surrounded by a bunch of white males or white females i'll sometimes like tell a joke to get in front of that awkwardness yep 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 same you know what i mean like i'll i'll make it known so that any any indiscretion or like um uh uh Fuck the word like is escaping what? me. Uh, microaggression that comes my way is like it's like it's like um like you almost welcomed it or like you've almost like been like given permission. Like uh, I don't know if I'd give permission to give it to, for me to get a microaggression <laughs> hurled at me, but I've gotten in front of the fact that if it comes my way, I am aware of why. Right, 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 right. right you know right, what right, I mean? Right. So it I makes see. it, I guess, less painful. Yeah. Or less, maybe less powerful is the the better word. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I completely understand. I feel the same way. Where it's just like, to me, it's sort of like we all know I'm the only Asian here, so let me just say it because mm-hmm. I know everyone's thinking it. You know, <laughs> like, like, or, or we think everyone's thinking it, right? You know, yeah. And, and I think so... that that is our conditioning 
as people of color. It's really hard. Yeah. And it's super hard to separate it's from so that. It's hard not to go there. Right. And that's like when we talk about nuance, like the nuance of being a person of color, like that's part of that nuance. That's that nuance that white people don't ever have to notice. Mm-mm. Unless they're in, you know, then this, unless it's flipped, then they, for, I'm sure they feel very... Right. Or you have that, like, you know, very, very aware white person. My boyfriend is definitely one of those people who's, like, almost too aware of his whiteness and his maleness and his socioeconomic background. Like, he's very aware of all of that because he wants to counteract the white privilege that he knows is working in his favor every day. Uh, Kind of like that sort of a thing. Interesting. I wonder how that affects his ability to be authentic and himself. And like, I'm sure that stuff like gets in the way. You know, he could be super authentic though. Like, I mean, it allows him to be that because he is so aware of it. Okay. I find that I notice it more in predominantly white spaces where I am the only black girl. He's like probably one of a few very aware white men. Uh huh. And in the space, in the space. And maybe the people that are like working in the event are minorities or maybe the person or maybe oh, it's in an area or maybe, you, you know, like white people don't really go or don't feel as safe. And like he can feel that he can sort of suss that out. Oh, I see. Like that sort of a thing. OK, OK. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm, that's good. Good for him. Anywho, <laughs> we wanted to choose Kimberly Crenshaw today mainly because her work, her work with intersectionality, without it, would we wouldn't be having the show that we have today. No, not at all. We wouldn't have the discussions about race that we have in such a frank manner without her foundational work. Totally. And I think ultimately, too, I think in this kind of work and in this sort of feminist world that we have our or that is being created there has to be specificity mm-hmm. because there's so many different kinds of people in this world yeah that i think without the specificity that she talks about and uh writes about there's no way you can really make change right you know if everything was just so general and broad there's no way and this stuff is really sensitive and really personal and people have died because of this yeah and killed because of this totally. and so i think she is an amazing amazing human being and i'm so grateful that her work is out there and will be out there forever. And I hope she can live till she's 150 so she can keep doing this work. Which is super important. And you know, it's not just I important. She's healthy and good. Right. And it's not just important for black people. It's not just important no, for women. It's not Any about marginalized that. Yeah. person has been affected by her work. Right. And that's the amazing. Yeah. The, ma- the amazing part of her and what well, she's Well, I mean, been if doing. you want to play devil's advocate, you can even. I mean, yeah, she talks about specifically coming from being a black woman but if, if there is someone who is white and is in a certain kind of neighborhood i mean there's they not all white people were born with just the easiest you know yeah maybe it's they're true. white but you know there's a lot of poor uh not very privileged white people that are mm-hmm. born in certain areas in this, in, and i'm sure they've had to deal with certain things with their other white people right so then you take that in and of itself yeah and they have to deal with their own things of like well i'm white but she's white but why do i feel this way around her or all the stuff that we've felt you know mm-hmm. so I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely was only thinking of, like, people of color or, like... Uh, someone who doesn't identify with being white, maybe they just feel like they are, you know, they don't feel like their skin colors. A right. lot of people feel that, you know? Yeah. Like, 
we I mean it's so intricate and it's so complex and that's why I think this kind of work is is great because you can I mean yes she like I said she is coming from a black girl's point of view and her experience and her roots and history but the fact that this kind of work can really be applied to anyone mm-hmm. uh is 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 what is is sort of like the stamp that's what makes it so fantastic yeah, yeah. definitely mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to end mm-hmm. so happy black history month y'all <laughs> if you want to check out Kimberly Crenshaw's work I will link to her TED talk in the show notes uh if you are in the LA area you're interested in studying law I don't know maybe go take a class <laughs> nope prerequisites uh, no prereqs for for prof crenshaw's class if you go tell her alana and jackie say hello we say what's up i'm sure if we ever meet her on the street we will just totally fangirl and she will be so i just so want to like be the creepy person that like breathes like really close to her you know just yeah. sniffs her hair kimberly crenshaw is like right up there with for me like with angela davis now like she's like right, right up there in importance and and oh my godness yeah and yeah just can i just have just have like one strand of your hair just something i want to know how kimberly crenshaw Crenshaw smells. Like, where does she shop? (laughs) Anyways, guys. Creepy. On a creepy note. (laughs) Have a happy Black History Month. We will be be back next week for our present feminist. And uh, she's a good one. I feel like you guys are going to really be down with that episode. Yep. This uh, episode was produced by Zeitgeist. Just to be clear, you guys, we are on a podcast channel which is called the zeitgeist uh so if you find us on spotify and itunes the zeitgeist will pop up under our network logo because that's our network uh so thank you christian for having us on there you are awesome you can find us on instagram at black and yellow podcast or you can reach out to us individually i am alana webster at renegade of fun i'm jacqueline chung young on the gram you can write please write and review if you're interested it helps us boost our subscribers and uh, get people to you know sponsor the podcast we are doing this totally for free so uh, to keep it going we would like your rate and reviews if you could help us out that'd be amazing and until next time guys bye bye